what helps you make sense of life? I think that whether we are a follower of Christ or not, all of us have something that helps us make sense of the life that we are in. So whether you're 10 years old, or whether you're 15, or whether you're 50 years old, all of us have something that governs our life. My question is simply this, what governs your life? What would our phones say governs our life? What would our reading list say governs our life? Whether we're religious or not, or we're young or old, we're married or single, we all have something that governs our life. What governs your life? If you are not a true follower of the Lord Jesus, that would be a good discussion to have with somebody, to do a a respectful discussion to have with a friend. If you are a follower of Christ, it's a good discussion to ask again and again. We may find out that something is shaping our lives more than we realize. What governs your life? Well, at the beginning of each year, we have a series of messages on the disciplines of grace or historic emphases that we've had as a church life. I just want to keep using this one word. I hope, friends, that this series in a word helps. I hope that it helps you in your pursuit of Christ through the means of grace through which he's promised to meet with you in a way he won't meet with you if you don't use the means of grace. So I hope it helps you pursue Christ through his word, because knowing Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. Do you know Christ? I hope this series helps you pursue Christ. I hope it helps in another way, too. I've been saying from the beginning, as we sail now into the new year, I I hope this kind of series helps you evaluate whether this congregation is for you, whether you're newly attending or whether you've been here for some time. For example, you might pass by a solid church or two on the way to this one. Here's a question you don't hear pastors ask very often. Why are you here instead of there? Oh, me. Oh, amen, right? Well, last week I preached at such a church, Heritage Bible Church, and Trent Hunter was here and I was there, and how thankful we are for the pastors and congregation who's there. A few years ago, we had a member from our congregation leave to become the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church across town. You might be closer to that congregation. Why are you here and not there? Or maybe where you are at this point in your life, that you, you think that what, what's needful most for your family or for you as an individual, what you need most right now is a church with more or less for kids or for teens or, or different books in the book nook or bookstall or whatever we call it or, or just different emphases. Now, friends, there are discussions to be had about all of those things to a point and to be sure. But if one is not growing under the ministry of the word or is frustrated by ongoing applications or by guidance from the elders, praise the Lord, we are not the only faithful congregation in the upstate. And you might you might be served better or serve better at another congregation and praise the Lord. So I hope this kind of series helps you in your pursuit of Christ. It helps you in your relationship to our church. And I hope finally it helps you pursue Christ. That is to know Christ's love better. Our first message in this Disciplines of Grace series began with our love for the unseen Christ. But this morning, I want us to think about not our love for Christ. I want us to think about of Christ's love for us. What we're thinking about this morning is experience the love of Christ, experiencing it as a church, particularly through prayer. So this is our second message now and the church's priority in prayer. And this morning, it's our priority in prayer ought to be that we would know the love of Christ. That's where we are in part two of this message. Two weeks ago, we looked at prayer, particularly the priority of prayer in the life of a church. Jesus said that my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, prayer should be as regularly in our church body as breathing is as normal in your own body. Now, often prayer is used for filler so that musicians and ushers can move around while everyone else has his or her eyes closed. Or prayers are abbreviated for the sake of efficiency and time or to make an emotional point at the end of a musical set. 
But it's hard to see how God's house can be called a house of prayer if those kinds of attitudes are so commonplace in God's house. Here's one question that always creates a measure of discomfort. And discomfort's good, right? It's not all bad. How is your prayer life? The Lord promises grace to us in prayer. He promises fellowship with himself in prayer. So how is your prayer life? I don't simply mean, what are you asking God about right now? But for the true Christian, sometimes we pray for no other reason than the pleasure of the Father's presence or to beg him to give us more. Or why are you hiding from me? You want more of the Father's love? Spend time more where he promises to give it. And loved ones, we don't need another book. We don't need another Bible study with 20 people or another method. We simply need to pray. Pray until you pray. Pray to know the Father's love, to be with Him. What love we often miss because we do not pray. Are you meeting Christ in prayer? And if we are praying in any consistent way, what are we praying for? What are we praying to get that at the beginning of the sentence and not the end? So you don't stumble that I put four at the end of a sentence. Some of you would stumble. Why does it matter what for what we pray? Because what we pray about reveals what we value and what we pray about most shows what we value most. So what do you value? Well, how would you know? Well, what you pray about most reveals what we value most. So what do our prayers show that we value most? Now, in the most general sense, such a diagnostic question might reveal that we actually value ourselves most. Why? Because we pray about ourselves most. In your prayers, do you find yourself valuing yourself even in your own family or in our own church most? Could it be part of a reason why you're discontent or frustrated in life or work or family in church? Because we love ourselves and our needs more than our neighbors. Or what if we have children? What do our prayers for our children from toddler to now they're out of my house, but they're still my kid? My mom would say, you're still my kid. So whether your kid is this little or this little big or whatever. What do our prayers for our children show that we value most about our children? Well, what do you pray most for about your children? What I mean is this. What if, I wonder, if the things that we pray for most aren't much different from the things people who don't know Christ wish for most too? That's not altogether bad. We share a common humanity. We need common grace. That's true. But are the priorities of our prayer truly Christian, consumed with matters that will last longer than the flu, a semester, the year, or your lifetime? We pray for good grades and health and a good game, and yet non-Christian parents wish the same. We pray for help with a presentation, a good meeting with clients, help on a test to make a free throw, with an offer on a house and so on. And yet don't our non-Christian friends wish often for the same kinds of things? Are the things we pray for most much different from those who don't know Christ wish for? Is there anything particularly Christian about our most treasured requests, our most frequent requests. And when we do pray for daily requests, which we need and we're licensed to pray for your daily bread, is there anything particularly biblical and how we pray for our daily bread and all it means? Or is our praying more akin to some kind of watered down yoga like meditation, more wishing for the same basic matters our atheist friends wish for? then we're actually talking to the God of glory with eternity's values in mind. Of course, we bring everything to the Lord. He's our Father, after all, and no request is too small. No time of the day, no place of the earth. We cast all our care on Him, for He doesn't simply care about our requests, but He cares about us. That's a great comfort and a privilege that He cares for us. We bring everything to Him. 
And yet in the Lord's prayer, the request for his kingdom to come and his will be done comes before the prayer for our daily bread. Learn what that means and why the order is there. The point is simply this. Do our prayers as a church, do your prayers as an individual reflect the priorities of prayer in the Bible? Because if God's word should govern our worship, shouldn't God's word govern our prayers, even the priorities that we have in them? So two weeks ago, I said, again, let's let the Bible's word shape our words as we pray. And let's let the Bible's priorities shape our priorities as we pray. The Bible's words, our words. The Bible's priorities, our priorities. And we pray. So we're turning again this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 in the first, second half of the Christian Bible. Because here in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying, and we can let the prayers and words of Paul's prayer shape our own. So Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Now, as Paul winds down chapter 3 in part 1 of Ephesians, this is the second time that he's going to pray. Most likely, think of this, Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. But there are no requests for himself, though he's in prison, and neither is he praying for the health and headaches of the believer in Ephesus. He has something more pressing to pray for as he's in prison and might die, and he wants them to know what he's praying for them about. Paul's prayers for this church should be the kinds of requests we prioritize as requests, as prayers for our church. So let's listen and learn As he prays. Why? Because what we pray for reveals what we value most. And we should let the Bible's priorities shape our priorities as a church. So Ephesians 3. Let's listen into this holy moment as Paul prays for a church like ours. Ephesians 3.14. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Just arranging this very simply, the posture and approach to prayer, the petitions of prayer, the reason for prayer. I don't have a P. Can you help me with another P? Posture, um, petitions, reason for prayer. I don't know. What? Did someone give one? Purpose? Well, okay, that's good. That's okay. That's good. That's good. That works. And the last is the praise. For his prayer. So that's good. All right. Posture, petitions, purpose, praise. We're going to spend most of our time on the petition, the posture and petitions, but you'll hear the purpose come out. That's good. All right. Thank you. All right. Now, Paul's posture, we saw this, is to approach God in deep humility and dependence. For this reason, I bow my knees. But his posture and approach are not only physical, but spiritual. I bow my knees before the Father. And not just your father, as if it's only you and God, and it's just God and I time or Jesus and you time. That can be important. But now he's saying before God, the father, before whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So so we we read what does the first petition teach us in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray with and for others. Our father means we should pray with and for. For others, we are not alone. Now think about this. Paul just came from one and two where he talked about 
how there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but he's put these races in the first century, which have religious and, and, and ethnic differences, and he's put them into the same body. And now as chapter 3 ends, he's saying, Jew and Gentile, I'm bowing my knees before the Father, under whom every family on earth is named Jew and Gentile and everything else. Now what does that mean then for a moment? Paul's address then of God as Father is one reason, if I look in chapter 2, why racism against any race is so evil. We looked at this in part. John Bestoni led the discussion with the young adult teens Friday night in the Bible study that racism is finally an attack on the image of God, on the general fatherhood of God who made us all in his image, under who all families in heaven and earth are named. It's why we, we uh, John Bastoni led from the book that we're reading, why leaving babies to die or taking life in the womb is evil too, because God is the father of all life. And only if there is the God who's a father over all life, can we say that all humans are equally valued regardless of race? Or can we say all humans are equally valuable no matter how small they are in or outside of the womb? In the book we were reading uh, Friday night, Yuval Hari explains that kind of thinking. He's a secular historian and his best-selling book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. He's a historian. His book has over 71,000 ratings on Amazon with an average of four and a half stars. 71,000 people have rated this book. We talked about the book. Hari says this, that the idea that human beings are equally moral, morally valuable, that there are such things as human rights is a fiction made up by Christianity. So speaking as someone who doesn't believe in God, Harari says human beings have, quote, human beings then have, quote, no natural rights, just as spiders and hyenas and chimpanzees have no natural rights. But deep down inside, you know that's not true. When a mom loses a child in pregnancy, they don't view it as a clump of cells. When you experience racism, you don't say, I shouldn't be bothered because historian Harari says, I have no more rights than a spider. And you know why? You know deep down that isn't true? Because in a very broad sense, God is the father of all that he made. At one level, at the broadest possible level, all of us in here can address God as Father in the sense that He's our Creator. And Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that he wanted the Jews and Gentiles now placed into the same congregation. He wanted them to know as he prays, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That's helpful. But there's more than that Paul's after. Much more than that. What do I mean? All of us in here have God as father and that he's our creator. So racism is evil and the lives of babies in and out of the womb matter. That's true. But not all of us have God as our redeemer. Not everyone in here then can address God as father in the sense that Paul means here. And unless God is your redeemer, you don't want to face him as your creator. Not everyone in here today can call God Father, for it's only those who have believed in his name, who've received Jesus, who have the right to be called the sons of God. John 1.12 Friend, is God your Redeemer? What a wonderful way then to approach God as our Father Redeemer. All who are in Christ, young and old, from every race and tribe, bow before our Father. God is not only our creator, what Paul means to communicate most tenderly, he's our Father who's redeemed us. How he loves us. There's sometimes this, this, this unfortunate contradiction that Jesus had to die on the cross to persuade God to love us. The cross did not persuade God to love us. It was the demonstration of his love for us. For God the Father so loved the world already that he gave his son. 
And now in Christ, with sins forgiven and sealed by the spirit, certainty of the new heavens, the new earth. Now we can address God in the same words of address that Jesus, the eternal son of God, did. John twenty seventeen. I'm now ascending to my father and your father. So when you pray, pray like this, our father. What a privileged and holy relationship. To address God as a father is to remember I'm not alone, that I have a family. I belong to the body of Christ. Thus, Paul's prayer here only makes sense in its fullest reality if you're part of a congregation, because in a congregation, you visibly live out the invisible reality of your relationship with God, not just as your father, but our father. In his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer references at least three precious implications of coming to God as Father. Packer explains that God is the Father for His redeemed children only, and that means that as our Father, He's always accessible to His children. He's never too preoccupied to listen what they have to say. That's the basis for Christian prayer. You may have to say to your kids, give me a moment and I'll be with you, God never says, give me a moment and I'll be with you. He's our father. Moreover, Packer explains that coming to God as father means that prayer then must not be thought of of impersonal or mechanical terms. As a technique for putting pressure on somebody who otherwise might disregard you. No, God is our father. He's the best father. Finally, Packer says that because God is our father, then we may be free and bold. And we need not hesitate. He's British. We need not hesitate to imitate the sublime cheekiness of a child who's not afraid to ask his parents for anything because he knows he can count completely on their love. Ask and it will be given to you. And everyone who asks, receive. Why? Because God is our father. Remember then that Paul's address, his posture, his approach in prayer is our own as a church family, that I bow my knees before the father from whom every family on earth is named. Remember then what coming to God as a father means in all of its relational complexity and depth. All of its mercy and love, all of its correction and comfort. We're having a conversation with our father. Then in verse 16, Paul provides the first petition in his prayer. He requests that a church like ours, that our congregation would be people that God does something in. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Uh, Three general observations. What a Trinitarian prayer. He prays that God the Father would strengthen us by His Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts. A Trinitarian prayer. What an an experiential prayer because Paul goes beyond mere knowledge or assent. He wants congregations to experience the full and permanent fellowship with Christ in their inner being. The best illustration I know is Revelation 3.20. Behold, Christ says to the church at Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door of your church and knock. This is not a verse written originally to a person without Jesus and need of conversion per se, though it may have applications. Instead, here is the risen Christ pleading, longing to come in and enjoy fellowship symbolized by a meal. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, church of Laodicea. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Christ longs not to be a guest, but to make his home with us. He longs to be with us more than we long to be with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Paul prays then for believers at Ephesus that God the Father would so strengthen their inner being by his spirit that Christ would be able to settle down in their hearts. They would experience deep and abiding fellowship with him. That 
they would experience what's objectively true, that it would become progressively true as well. He prays that our experiential fellowship with Christ, that his presence in our lives would touch every part of our lives. It's a Trinitarian prayer. It's an experiential prayer. It's a Christ-centered prayer. That Christ himself would be at home in our hearts as we actively trust him. That we would experience the rich, warm, abiding presence of Jesus. That we would experience Christ himself. He's come to make us home in our hearts. Beloved, I'll put it this way. Don't, don't let any door in your life remain closed to him. Don't keep the crawl space without access to Him, the the closet, whatever it is. Pray that God, by His Spirit, would strengthen you to open every door and closet of your heart that Christ might make us home with you. Father, make the presence of Your Son so real that we sense Your love and live in light of it. That's His first request. But now the middle of verse 17, here's a second petition. What is Paul's second petition? End of verse 17. I'm also praying that you being rooted and grounded in love might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Now the basis of Paul's second petition is there at the end of verse 17. The basis is being rooted and grounded in love. Now, Paul's first request in verse 16, he grounded his position, his his petition in accordance with the riches of his glory. But now the basis of the petition is being rooted and grounded in love. I'm praying for you. Here's a glorious mixed metaphor that you're not supposed to do in your own writing. On the one hand, Paul prays because we are rooted in love. Here's the picture. Draw it if you like. Rooted like a tree whose roots sink deep and wide into the soil, so that neither the passing of time nor the squall of a storm can topple this rooted tree over. It's rooted like a tree, deep and wide into his love. Being deeply rooted, I pray. But on the other hand, Paul immediately breaks the metaphor, and now he speaks of being grounded. Grounded like a building. Grounded not on shifting sand, but grounded on the sure foundation, on the solid slab of an immovable rock. So one translation says, I'm praying. This translation, the phrase has, with deep roots and a firm foundation. But what matters most is what the rooting and grounding are in. Being rooted and grounded in what? Being rooted and grounded in love. A life of a church, a life of a believer is rooted and grounded in love. So you put this mixed metaphor on the one hand of agriculture rooted and architecture grounded and you put these two metaphors together and we have this marvelous reality that love is the soil in which we are rooted and love is the foundation upon which we are built. May I add one more expression Paul uses about God's love? In Romans 5, 5, Paul says, quote, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We're like a rooted tree, like a grounded, secure building. We're filled to the brim with the poured in love of God. This is an objective, marvelous reality. Whether you experience it or not, this is true. We are in the love of God, the Father, like a tree in soil. We are on the love of God, like a building built into a foundation. And not only, not only are we in God's love, but God's love is in our hearts, poured into them with His Spirit. Indeed, you could say the Spirit is the love of God poured into our hearts. Here, then, is the objective reality of our existence as children of God. Indeed, Paul began this entire letter with that reminder. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in Christ and in love he predestined us. We've been 
in the sphere of God's love from before the foundation of the world. That's how deeply rooted and grounded we are in love. But as soon as Paul references this objective reality, connecting what he said in chapter 1, now Paul is praying for our subjective experience of this love that we are in. He prays now that we would experience the love being rooted and grounded in love. I now pray that you would have strength to comprehend and know this love. I want you to experience the love you are already in. Maybe a corny illustration. Here we go. Real short. You can be in an amusement park and not enjoy everything that's there. You can be in Yellowstone National Park and not be able to see everything in Yellowstone National Park. So you can be in Christ and not be enjoying all that there is in Christ. So Paul prays Not only that we are in Christ, but that we would experience the love in which we are in. Swim in it. Enjoy in it. Soak it. I want you to experience the love of Christ. You are in it. Now enjoy it and experience it. This is what he prays for. Now what this what this prayer means, at the least what this prayer means is this. That there are aspects of the Father's love for us we will not experience unless we pray for it often. There's a, an old hymn called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. There's an old line in the hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's good. Can I adjust the line a little bit in light of Paul's prayer here? Not contradicting, but supplementing it. It won't all fit. But oh, what love we often forfeit. All because we do not linger with the Lord in prayer. Paul's prayer here means at the least we will never experience the full dimensions of his love without asking for it apart from prayer. And listen, listen, whether you are in a job that you don't like or in a hospital bed you don't like, what you need most in either situation is a deeper apprehension of the father's love. We need something more, more than a lasting diagnosis that's good to us. We need to know the love of Christ down deep into the bones of our soul. Now, one way this happens, one way the love of the Father soaks down deep into your soul is by soaking in his love or to use a biblical word by meditating on his love that's in his word. This means Clearing stuff out from our lives. Taking out the trash from your soul. Maybe working differently. Taking a different job. Going to one income. Getting off social media or Apple TV or sports blog or the like. Whatever it is, do you need to take out the trash in your life so you can meditate on his love? I pray that you would have strength in your inner man. That Christ would dwell in your heart. Take out the trash. So he can be at home. That you can know his love. You won't be changed by what you don't think about. And if we want to be changed by the Father's love, you have to think about his love. That's true. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Here's a common grace example of that. You're not changed by what you don't think about. You've got to think deeply to be changed deeply. Cal Newport wrote two books, 2016, Deep Work, followed up in 2017 with Digital Minimalism. Newport argues that we need large chunks of undistracted time to do any meaningful thinking or what he calls deep work. And he argues the biggest threats to deep work are things like email and social media and hyperlinked articles, and the phones that we have in our pockets. One of the biggest hindrances to deep thinking or Christian concentration and meditation is the phone you brought with you today. Cal Newport makes that argument. We've trained ourselves to have little time for two things, he says, 
for concentration and for contemplation. We've trained ourselves instead to be distracted, not to think. We love being distracted. And as a result, we get little thinking done or any deep work accomplished. We've never been more aware of our mental health and never less in control of it. Because as Newport argues, we live in a distracted age. And self-care now is the only kind of deep work we know how to do, which is turned into self-absorption. And it's no wonder we're mentally unstable because we're just thinking and digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the self. So yes, on the one hand, take the common grace observation of a writer like Newport who calls us to deep, undistracted thinking or what the Bible commanded before Cal Newport to meditate on his word his love day and night. Because without the deep work of meditating on his love, you won't be changed by his love. The deep work of thinking about his love. And yet, that's not what Paul's talking about. Well, on one level you can say, he just took us on a deep dive for three chapters into his love. I mean, there's only one imperative in the first three chapters. Paul did the deep work of love and now he's doing this. You've got to do the deep work of thinking and now you're going to have to do a deeper work of praying it into your soul. What he reveals in Ephesians 3 is you need something more than meditation of reading my first three chapters. You've got to pray the Father's love into your life, into the life of your church, Church of Ephesus. The deepest and richest experience of the Father's love only come about through prayer. So, Just questions for us. Questions. You may ask different diagnostic questions. Do you pray for your job and for grades and your cold and your house and a good day at work more regularly than you pray than to know the Father's love? And then we blame God for being distant or not loving us because we pray so infrequently for it and we could sing to ourselves, oh, what love we often forfeit all because we do not linger with the Lord in prayer. It's got to be prayed in. And notice the first thing he prays for about this love in verse 18, that we might have strength to comprehend it. I take that to mean I need supernatural help to grasp his love because I don't want it unless he helps me sometimes. You ever felt like that? God, give me strength to comprehend what you made me. Sometimes I don't want it, and I know I should. Give me strength to comprehend the love that I should, but I don't. Beg for God to give you what you're, to, what you're made for, the love of the Father. It also means that even when I do desire the Father's love, I have no ability to take it all in unless you help me. We read yesterday, uh, some men, uh, Thomas Vincent's love for the unseen Christ. He writes, tell him you cannot of yourselves love him without help. Why you could as easily lift up a mountain to heaven as lift up your own heart to Christ. Give me strength to comprehend your love. Why is that? Because did you, did you notice how massive the love of God is? He prays, you would, this is how massive it is. I want you to have strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. I mean, think of it this way. You ever, you ever move the piano by yourself? You need help to do so, or you'll need help because you try to do it by yourself afterwards. You get the point if you, okay, if there's a Hercules in here, run, work with the illustration, okay? You don't move a piano, you need help. Oh my goodness. You need help to grasp the love of God. It's bigger, weightier, more massive, significant, immeasurable than a piano. I need help. That's what Paul is begging for. The height and depth of it. How do you think you'll ever beget your mind, the arms of your mind around the love of the Father unless He helps you by His Spirit who He poured into your heart? It's limitless in its scope. Behold the height and the depth. Behold the length and the breadth. It's so comprehensive. It's so, what do we sing? Vast beyond all measure. 
It's so brilliantly and terrifyingly beautiful that you need supernatural help to look at it and live or look at it and take it in. Father, I'm begging you that this congregation, you would give them supernatural ability to grasp the sprawling mountain-like dimensions of your love for them. Think of it like this. Go back to my amusement park again. You go on a tour of a city. You're on a tour group or whatever. You go into a museum. I've been to the Hermitage in, 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 in Russia. And uh, I didn't speak Russian yet. Spasiba, you know, Dasvidanya, all that. But like, how long are you going to be here? I've got three hours. You'll never take it all in. You better see this and this and this. Or you go to your favorite park and they say, you're going to need a park pass to experience everything in here, to comprehend it all. Now, if you need help, if you need a few days of help taking in a theme park or a museum, how much more help do you need to comprehend the love of God? Loved ones, it's a supernatural undertaking to experience the love of God. What if we prayed to experience God's love as much as we worry about what happened to us in the past or what's coming tomorrow? What if you prayed for God's love as much as you worried? What if we prayed for our church to know the love of God as much as we complain about different things? Or I as a pastor am depressed about in the congregation. What if we prayed for our kids to know the love of God more frequently and more ardently than we prayed for them to pass the test or to make the travel team? They need the love of Christ. So that when they fail and God ordains them to suffer, they will know that the love holds. What if we prayed, can I, can I say this without undermining any of, any of the appropriateness of these requests? But I'm trying to take something we already do and say, how much more? What if we prayed with the same diligence to experience the love of the Father as earnestly as we pray about cancer? Or the, the desire to conceive. Or that my mom would make it out of the hospital. What if you prayed as earnestly and often as the love of God for you to experience as you do everything else? We know how to pray earnestly. Do you pray earnestly for the love of God to come and you know it in your heart? That's the love we are made for. And we pray so little to experience. And I wrote my notes yesterday at this point. Are we? Am I even a Christian? If I don't pray like this? Do we know that what we are made for, that we can know the love in heaven and have it in our hearts before we see him who is love in heaven? Paul prays for divine help in desiring this love and the ability to take it all in. And he's praying that from jail to this church. We sing about the love of God better than we pray for it, don't we? That's a good thing. He sang songs about God's love this morning. And maybe... Just reflecting in my life, in your life. I mean, all good things can become ultimate things. That's true. Maybe maybe we need to have more songs about the Father's love in our playlist than Billy Eyelashes and Taylor Swift and Luke Combs. I know I said her name wrong. right? So, Or Luke Combs or Chris Stapleton. Why? What does Brian often tell us that Martin Luther Augustine said? Because he who sings prays twice. Because many of our songs are prayers or show us how to meditate in prayer, sing about the Father's love and meditate on it. And while we, we sing about it more than we pray about it, what if we sang about it more in our cars, in our homes, and we learn to pray better for it? I asked a number of people the last two weeks, 
What's your favorite song about God's love? And whether they were younger than I am or older than I am, here's the song in my unofficial non-scientific survey that got the most responses. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless and free, rolling as a mighty ocean is its current over me. Amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me. Father, help us to experience the limitless dimensions of your love. I'll push us a little more to think. Some come to these descriptions of height and depth and breadth, and they think, why did Paul use these expressions? I mean, having just talked about the church as the temple at the end of two, maybe now Paul is praying in spatial dimensions that, that you would you'd be able to take in what God has done to make us his people. Others say that the words of height and depth and breadth and length of love of the Father mean this, that God's love is broad enough to encompass all mankind, Jew and Gentile. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. I don't know that Paul meant any of those things exactly. But the phrases invite us to marvel at and pray for the marvelous, infinite, matchless love of God. It's breathtaking. And then Paul prays that and he turns to praying for an outright paradox. Verse 19, I want you to be able to comprehend the limitless dimensions of his love and I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What was that, Paul? You want me to know what I can't know. Yes, I want you to pray. Yes. Part of it means this isn't a matter of simple human meditation. The Father, by His Spirit, has to reveal this to us. We can never plumb its depths or or comprehend its magnitude. And no matter how much we know of the love of Christ, there's always more to know. There's always more to experience. And then Paul prays this. Here's the purpose. Ready? Here's the purpose. So that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. His first purpose, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this purpose, that you would be full, filled with all the fullness of God. The expression communicates full maturity. If I said I want my sons to be filled with all the fullness of their father, it's an expression of complete maturity. Paul uses the similar expression in the next chapter in verse 13, chapter 4, when he says that Christ gives pastors to help the church do the work of the ministry until the church comes to the mature person, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Filled with the fullness of God that somebody can look at a church or a person and say, there is a son of God. There is a do- so filled with the fullness of God. This is the priority then of Paul's prayer for this church. Our lives so pure and holy, having been strengthened with power in our inner man, that Christ makes his presence known. He abides with us. And now understanding that we're rooted and grounded in love, that our lives are so inundated with the love of God that we are filled to the brim with the very fullness of God. And this entire prayer takes place not in Starbucks or at the business person's coaching session or on the athletic field after the game or in the shop. This prayer takes place as a church for a church. This is a corporate congregational prayer. And so Paul concludes with his praise in this prayer. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according. Here's his theme again of that power at work within us to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what I'm praying for. 
Now, one thing at the end. I want to talk about experiencing it, but how do you know if a church or a family or an individual is actually starting to experience the love of God? That's the rest of the book. Verse 4 opens, I entreat you, therefore, to walk worthy of this calling. Not you are called to the donut shop or called to be a cop or called. You are called in Christ, in love. Walk worthy of this love that I talked to you about and I'm praying that you experience. Well, how do you know if you're starting to experience the love of God? You know how you know? When you start putting up with one another. When you're eager to maintain the unity. When you're humble and gentle and patient and forbearing. Chapter 4, verse 1. You know that Christ's love is starting to permeate your life when you start putting off lying and you put off sexual immorality and crude jesting and you learn to speak words of kindness that comfort and construct, that's Ephesians 4. You know that you as a husband are experiencing the love of Christ growing in your life when you neither abdicate nor abuse your role as the leader in your home, but you learn to love because you're experiencing the love of Christ in your own soul. And you as a wife know you're experiencing the deep love of Christ when you are learning to intelligently and joyfully submit as Christ did. That's a marriage in which husbands and wives are experiencing the love of Christ. It's a family in which dads are not provoking their kids to anger and children are obeying their parents. That's children and a dad in whose lives God's love is taking over. People who do their jobs, not with eye service to please men, but because they want to glorify God. Business owners who deal justly with their clients and workers because God has done so with them. That's how you know that you are experiencing the love of God in your life. It changes everything around you. Yes. Knowing the love of Christ, experiencing it more and more will change everything about our church our conversation, our marriage, our relationship, our work schedules, our priorities, our workplace, our singleness, our spiritual warfare, all changed because we're experiencing the love of Christ. So we should pray. Oh, Father, give us strength to comprehend, to experience more of the limitless dimensions of your love that we might be filled with all the fullness of you And do this in Christ through our church forever and ever. And all the Lord's people said, Amen.